Part 5 of The Boy with the White Hair Written and performed by Nick Thurston Eglas began his work immediately. The first thing he wanted was to get a clear sense of what it was he was after. What was this kundu that had brought such ruin to so great a hold? The morning after his arrival, Eglas met the master of the guard in the main courtyard. He had asked to visit the battlements, where the guardsmen had been taken a fortnight ago from the castle itself. The master was a gruff man, about twenty years Eglas senior, with sharp eyes, a barrel-like belly, and a thick black beard. He stared hard at Eglas for a long time without saying anything, apparently in the habit of making up his own mind about people before wasting his words. Then he nodded, grunted, and spat to the side. I'm Rovak he said. Hrovak led Eglas across the yard, their boots crunching on the frozen hay strewn about on the flags. Stopping at the door of a slim tower along the outer wall, he opened the lock with a massive iron key. Gray stone spread out above them. Happened just there, Hrovak said pointing at an ominous dark streak on the inner side of the wall below the walkway. I'll bring you up. But Eglas shook his head. I'd like to go alone, he said. Hrovak shrugged and retreated to the nearby guardhouse. The stairwell inside the tower was dark, and climbing it seemed to take a very long time. The top of the tower had collapsed. Snow drifted into the stairwell through the missing roof, and Eglos had to kick steps in it in order to reach the door. Stepping out onto the rampart, he felt an immediate sense of isolation. Wind whispered over the lonely stretch of wall between him and the next tower. Eglos closed his eyes and listened to it. Turning around, he looked closely at the stones of the tower behind him. He took off his glove and ran his fingers over them, pausing briefly along the broken outer edge. Slowly, he made his way to the place where the dark streak ran down the wall. It was blood, frozen solid and black against the masonry. He knelt. Bits of flesh and bone were stuck in it. Whatever had taken place there had been sudden and very violent. Eglos stood and leaned out between the merlins. A frozen gust pressed up the outer wall, whipping his hair about his face. He fought back vertigo. The wall dropped straight down for a hundred feet a steep embankment. Save the tower stairs, there was no way to reach this place. 
Eglos stroked his chin. Back on the ground, Eglos went into the guardhouse. He found Frovac sitting on a bale of hay before a brazier, with a leather mug of beer in his hands. The master of the guards sighed and made as if to stand, but Eglos waved him off. Frovac grunted appreciatively and spat. This was apparently his favorite expression of approval. Eglos poured himself a mug from the quarter cask and sat down beside Rovac. So, said the master of the guard after a few minutes of silence, what's next? I want to talk to whoever claims to have seen it. Rovac chuckled mirthlessly. All of them? Were there many? asked Eglos, surprised. At first, no said Hrovac. There's a lot of superstition around here. Everyone's afraid the thing knows if you talk about it. What changed? Hafnir offered a silver knuckle to anyone who came forward with a sighting. Did he now? Egloss said and sighed. You can guess what sorts of stories came out of the woodwork after that. Egloss nodded. Even so, I mean to find out what's true. Rovac looked him in the eye. He seemed to be considering whether or not to say something. Finally, Rovac drained his mug and rested it on his formidable belly. You're not the first one who has tried to kill this thing, he said. Eglos didn't reply. Listen, said Rovac. You seem like a brave man, and you've got quite a reputation. But there are a lot of reputations buried under the hills out there by now. Whatever that thing is, he looked away and shook his head. It's not natural. That much isn't superstition. Out in the kennels, a sled dog started howling. It was a long mournful sound. Let me give you some advice, said Rovac. Stay here a while. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the fire. Enjoy the women. Then go out and have a ride around the countryside. Collect a few modest donations. Come back to Oathguard empty-handed return home with a full stomach, a full purse, and a tale of adventure that doesn't end with you in a dozen pieces out on some moor. That's what all the smart ones have done. Eglos drained the rest of his beer and stood. Let's go talk to the witnesses. The interviews lasted all day. And the master of the guard had been right about one thing. The witnesses were as inventive as they were numerous, and after wading through two dozen conflicting accounts, Eglos was no closer to understanding the nature of his quarry. If the results were to be believed, the Kundu was a glowing specter, dripping with blue frost, and made of wind, 
that was somehow simultaneously an assassin hired by the castle shoemaker to kill all of his wife's lovers. After the last witness had been heard, Egloss left the castle and went to stretch his legs. He soon found himself alone on the street that runs parallel to the eastern wall. He was standing there, not far from where we sit, lost in thought, watching snowflakes land on the mantle of his cloak when the soft crunch of footsteps broke the silence. He looked up to see an old woman in a faded red shawl standing before him. Her hair was drawn back in a tight bun, and her jaw was firmly set. She looked him up and down, as if appraising him. "'Good evening, Grandmother,' said Eglas. The old woman only nodded. He saw by her footprints that she had come from the direction of the market, which was some distance away. She carried a basket containing a single turnip and a bit of barley wrapped in cloth. "'You should be inside,' he said. "'It grows cold. "'May I take your arm and walk with you?' Without a word, the old woman clutched his elbow, and they went together down the street in the fading light. At the doorway to a small cottage in the shadow of the castle walls, she stopped and beckoned Eglas in. From outside... The cottage appeared dark and cold. The scent of roasting meat had begun to drift down from Hafnir's kitchens. Eglas's stomach grumbled. If he went in, he would have to forego dinner in the halls of the Thane. Yet he accepted her invitation, and soon found himself sitting beside a little fire on a three-legged stool, waiting as she cooked a meager soup from the barley and turnip. In went a few pinches of fennel seeds and lovage, and a bit of dried dill. In the end, the steaming wooden bowl she handed him satisfied his heart in a way the roast moor-drag of the castle never could have. After taking the last mouthful of soup, he thanked the old woman, and was standing to leave when she spoke to him for the first time. "'Are you the new hero?' the thane has summoned? she asked. Eglos was taken aback. By this point, he'd assumed the old woman was a mute. I am, he said. So you have come to face the monster that everyone is calling the Kundu? Eglos nodded. Whether it is my fate to defeat it, the gods will decide. But face it, I shall. He shook his head and sighed. But right now, I'm just trying to figure out what it is. The old woman nodded approvingly. Then you might like to hear what I have seen. Eglos looked deep into her eyes, and the glint of steel he saw there told him that, indeed, she had something to tell him. He motioned for her to go on. Look, she said, pointing behind him with a long, bent finger. Eglos swiveled around on the stool. Beside the door of the cottage was a single window, 
Through it, Aegloss could see the battlements of the castle, running along like the ridged spine of a black serpent. The red crescent of the maiden moon had just begun to emerge from behind them. Right there, where yonder moon rises above that broken tower, is where the guardsman was taken a fortnight ago, she said. Then, pointing her finger to the spot beneath the window, she added, And right there is where I was sitting when it happened. Eglos sat forward with rapt attention. Tell me everything, Grandmother. Over the following hour, the old woman's story came out. Her name, he learned, was Horijaya, and she was a widow who made her living mending clothing for the Thane's men. That night, she had been up late, darning a shirt and socks by candlelight. As the Yotahala passed from the House of Revels, she happened to look out her window. The guard was walking by on his rounds atop the wall. She knew him well, for she seldom slept for long and was often up at the hour of his patrol. She waved to him, and he waved back. She returned to her work, but a moment later she was seized by an overwhelming sense of dread. She looked back up to the window, and when she did, her mouth fell open in horror. An enormous black shadow, cast by nothing, was stalking the battlements. She leaped to her feet, and her work dropped to the floor. She blinked again and again, but the image remained. The thing was entirely translucent. She could see the constellations in the midnight sky straight through its body. Yet the Mother Moon was full, and by its light she could make out the vague outline of a long, sinuous body, six legs, and a hypnotic, swaying tail. But most terrible of all were the eyes. Pure white and unblinking, they burned in the darkness like a pair of malevolent stars. Horajaya had had no time to cry out a warning. In a single, liquid motion, the giant shadow scaled the broken tower, coiled itself, and pounced. It crushed the guardsman to the battlements and did something to him that she could not see. When it lifted its head, the man's body hung limp from its jaws. It turned towards Horajaya's window, as if to show her what it had done, and then flashed away into the night. It never once made a sound. Eglas left Horajaya's house that evening with a feeling of foreboding such as he had never experienced before. His quest seemed to have taken on a new gravity. The first suggestion of what the Kundu might be had entered his mind. The next morning, Eglas sped from Othgard. For ten days and ten nights, 
he traversed the lands of Evenhoe, visiting other sites of the monster's attacks. Astride Doradrun's heaving back, he crossed ice-clad streams and lonesome moors, scrambled up rocky slopes, and ventured deep into thicketed ravines. From town to town and village to village he went, following always the ancient roads that only the animals now recognize. He stopped wherever the Kundu had left its mark and began his investigation anew. Methodically, he gathered whatever evidence remained. Listening at the scenes of death, he caught whispers in the language of tree and stone. Speaking to frightened townsfolk, he began to sense patterns in their stories. Were it not for the evening spent at Horajaya's hearth, he would have remained stumped, for none had seen the monster so clearly as she. But as each new piece of evidence matched what she'd told him, the seed of suspicion planted in the back of Eglas's mind began to grow. When at last he had exhausted all the evidence that could be gathered, he returned to Oathguard. Thane Hafnir was waiting for him in the Great Hall. The fires were low, the hall smoky and dark. The serpentine designs engraved on the Thane's high seat writhed and danced in the firelight. Maya Esenaya was there, too. She sat with her women, carving talismans out of bone. Also present were various of Hafnir's retainers and his most experienced woven, the same who had come to him with news of the Morai growing in the Nitikos nearly two decades before. The former leaned against the carven pillars with their shields at their feet, while the latter stood beside his chair looking, as Wothen always did when indoors, uncomfortable and out of place. All eyes rose to greet Eglos as he entered the hall. But Eglos's own eyes sought one among the rest. It was not difficult to spot her. For though Freerla sat in the darkened valley between two hearths, a halo of blue light hung about her neck. It came from the necklace she wore. It was formed of long, slender pillars of blue calcite, laid in a ring around her chest and shoulders. The stones were of that variety called Koldeskathir, that emits a bewitching phosphorescence when warmed by the skin. In the shadowy hall, the bars of stone were like rays emanating outward from the star of her face. On seeing the twinkle of her eyes in the darkness, Eglos lost his words. Well, said Hafnir, when after some time Eglos had failed to begin, no word has come before you. Is the monster slain? Eglos shook his head. Hafnir raised his hand to silence the murmur that arose. Then why have you returned here? 
Glancing around the hall, Eglos noted that some among the shield-bearers seemed glad of the news that he had not returned victorious. "'My sojourn from Oathguard was not to find the monster,' said Eglos, "'but to find out what it is.' "'Then tell us,' said Hafnir. "'What have you learned?' "'As part of my training,' Eglos began, I learned the names and forms of the ten thousand entities that can be found in our world. I was taught to identify them by ordinary means, but also by signs unseen by others. Mutterings in the trees beneath whose branches they have rested. The color of the water in streams they have crossed and the taste of the wind which has kissed their flesh. The brush-browed Woven standing beside Hafnir's chair nodded significantly. There are such divisions made in this branch, Eglos went on. First, there are beings which exist fully in our world and live beneath sun and moon as we do. Second are those which exist only in darkness, when night thins the boundary between this world and the next. And third are entities which live in the realms beyond and enter our domain only when some magic has beckoned them. To which category does our monster belong? asked Hafnir. None, said Eglos. Speak your meaning, said Hafnir. Again, a murmur passed around the hall. The woven leaned forward, peering at Eglos. His eyes were black and beady in the flickering light. There is a fourth category, said Eglos, whose contents lie beyond my knowledge, for in this category are counted the offspring of the gods. It is to this category that the Kundu belongs. The murmur in the hall became an uproar. Impossible! cried one of Hafnir's retainers. No such beings still walk the earth. If what you say is true, said another, you bring us not hope, but despair. I think the stargazer from Sir Sidromar is mistaken, said a voice from the shadows. It came from the sinewy man called Yellowmane, a shield-bearer whose eye had long been on Freerla. I am not, said Eglos. Then share with us your proof, sneered Yellowmane, slouching into the firelight. For I am afraid that your reputation alone is not reason enough for us here to believe you. By what signs did you recognize this monster born of gods? By those which your eyes would miss, said Eglas. Is that so? said Yellowmane. My eyes are keen enough, and it seems to me that such an origin for your foe 
might serve as a convenient excuse for a failed hunt. Yellowmane cast a meaningful look at Hafnir and at Freerla. Hafnir narrowed his eyes. His daughter's reaction, however, was lost in the shadows. Eglos gritted his teeth. I have carried out my search with care and circumspection, and have gathered such evidence as can only point to what I now claim. Then show it, said Yellowmane. For I think it likely that you have been riding around, indulging in the hospitality of our people, and now return to indulge once more in that of our thane. Such feasts as you had when you arrived do not simply rise out of the ground, you know, and not all receive them. A result is expected for such honors. Eglas's temper flared. For ten days I have eaten less than a beggar, and slept just long enough to keep my wits. I have harvested your lands for information, going where none of you would dare to tread. I question whether you have kept your wits if you would test my courage, spat Yellowmane. In a flash he drew his sword. I was not given my position for want of right yield. We shield-bearers remain here only to guard our thane against the monster from without and the charlatan from within. Eglas did not flinch. You'll find me ready to defend against any insult, he said, staring into Yellowmane's eyes. Whether you make it with that dull sword in your hand, or the even duller one in your mouth. Yellowmane came rushing forward. But before blood could be spilt, Hafnir stood from his chair. Put away your weapon, he bellowed, and your quarrelsome attitude with it. Eglas is a guest in our house, and we shall soon see if what he says is true. Yellowmane returned his sword to its scabbard, but the gleam in his eyes as he withdrew into the shadows told Eglos that this would not be the end of it. Hafnir seemed to take no notice. Turning to his woven, he said, Dunsinir, I have long trusted you to guide me on matters of the woad, and you have never led me astray. Listen to what young Eglos tells you, and confirm for me whether he is correct in his assessment. For you alone among us might understand the nature of the evidence he has collected. In short, is it true what he has said? Are we plagued by a monster born of the gods? If so, what can we expect from it? And so Eglos sat before the brown-robed Woven and told him all that he had seen and heard on his travels. For his part, Dunsinir listened intently with furrowed brow, asking certain questions that revealed the depths of his knowledge. When it was over, the Woven addressed the hall. Eglas is correct he said, in a voice that was quiet and slow, 
as if the language of men was for him a second tongue. The monster is no ordinary beast. It is a child of Nawan, the Night Mother. Whispers swept the hall. Hafnir raised his hand and beckoned the Woven to continue. It has been said, said Dunsinir, that in the days before night and day were separate, no such beings existed. Valo and Nawin shared the same bed. The world was in twilight. All things slept and were at peace. But when the Sun Lord discovered dawn in the root tree, he was unable to resist her. Nine times Valo snuck from Nawin's side to pass a stolen hour with Elos. Nine times he crept back into bed, thinking he had deceived her. But no one, not even gods, can keep secrets from the night. Nawin learned of his betrayal and determined to get revenge. She went to Sir. Goddess of cold, master of spite and vengeance. It was Cirn who introduced her to Ingar. He had long been desirous of night, and so now uncoupled with Ingar, the god of wrath. Nine monstrous offspring were born of the union. They were called the Shevara, those who walk in shadow. These are the very same beings who draw the cloak of Nawin across the evening sky, the same which sleep in the frozen caves of Sirnaskral, the Hall of Winter. It is one of these that haunts us now. The room had gone deadly still. Tension seemed to be reverberating in the air. But Dunsinir was not yet finished. Such is the extent of my own knowledge, said the Woven. Got from my master before me and his master before him. But as to what we might expect? what form it takes, and how it might be confronted, for that I must look beyond what I myself know. For that I would need to peer into the Valsunga. The fire cracked loudly. An uneasy glance passed among all present. What the Woden was suggesting required a powerful spell. But it was no hall magic that he meant to practice. It was the magic of the underworld, the magic of the primeval forest, and not meant to be done in the houses of Owaira. But Hafnir was desperate. He nodded to the Woven, and Dunsinir made ready for the ritual. 
First, he called for silence. Then, humming to himself an eerie tune, he withdrew from a pouch around his neck three dried mushrooms. The first was a morai, white and orange. The second was translucent and egg-shaped and wore a veil, a holy mushroom. But the last was a black and shriveled thing, like one of the severed ears the Yuras wore as trophies. It was a Norimdrag from the depths of the Black Cavern. Gunsinir went to the fire burning in the hearth that was cut from the great pillar at the center of the hall. Making animal sounds, he cast each mushroom into the fire in turn. Strange smoke now filled the hall, black and creeping. Shadows seemed to take on a One by one, the other fires faded and died, as if their light were being sucked away from them. Meanwhile, the fire in the pillar grew brighter and hotter. The woven dropped to all fours and began pacing back and forth in front of the flame. His grunts became deeper and more guttural. Soon, none could distinguish them from the sounds of an actual beast. Smoke trailed about his limbs. His back arched unnaturally, and those looking through the haze thought they saw long, bristly hair rising along his spine. His pace more and more restless until, with a final grunt, Dunsinir froze. He remained perfectly still, as if transfixed. He closed his eyes. In a low, gravelly voice that was not his own, the Wothen spoke the words of the spell that would transport part of him into the Valsunga, the sea of shadowy mist that separates our world from that of the gods. Haldigasora, Aun Ausa Fir, Aun Ausa Ora, Aun Ausa Gird, Ultigasora, Ultiganai, Ultigarola, Harga Kora Gai. there came a great crack. The fire in the central hearth burst and went out, its embers spraying across the floor. The hall was plunged into darkness. For a few moments, only Freerla's necklace stood out from the murk. Then the woven opened his eyes. A gasp swept round the room, for his eyes now stretched far wider than those of any man. 
and glowed in the darkness with amber light. His pupils had become slits, like those of a cat. For a time, the Wothen looked slowly this way and that, tilting his head like an animal that has awoken to find itself in an unfamiliar place. He padded back and forth, and bent low to the ground, as if scenting it. I see, he said in a faraway voice. An uncanny atmosphere pervaded the room. All had the sense that something had entered it that was not there before. The shield-bearers looked uneasily from side to side. I see. Dunzanir's eyes seemed to fix on something. The onlookers tried to see what he was looking at, but could find nothing. Whatever it was, the Wothen's enormous eyes tracked its movements. I see... A thing that moves in darkness, said Dunsinir. It passes from one shadow to the next, as a man might pass from room to room. Through the bridge of night, it has found its way into our world, and there it hunts. Its hunger is a vessel that can never be filled. Three horses high is the snake of its back, four horses long from head to tail. It walks on six legs, yet its feet make no sound. Though they strike upon a bed of dry leaves, not so much a whisper can be heard. Except by witch light or the glow of the full mother moon, it is entirely invisible. Like ink spilling through dark water, it comes. There was a pause. The smoke in the room thickened even more. I see it stalking someone now, said the woven. It lies in wait, in a lonesome, out-of-the-way place where men come to walk on water and trees float in the sky. The Wolden's voice trailed off. Why? said Eglas, his voice cutting through the silence. Why is it here? The Wothen tilted his ear, as if hearing Eglos at a great distance. It has come for revenge. Revenge for what? asked Eglos. The Wothen's head turned, his slit pupils dancing as he searched for something in the mists of the Valsunga. Then... Without warning, they spun to Hafnir, 
and fixed upon him with undeniable certainty. Even in the darkness, Eglos could see the color drain from Hafnir's face. The woven opened his mouth. Enough! The thane's voice thundered through the hall. Let this be the end of it! I should never have allowed... But he did not finish, for the woven let forth a piercing cry. Screaming in anguish, he was lifted from his feet by an invisible force until his body hung suspended in the air. Then came a terrible crack, like the sound of an enormous cord snapping under too great a strain. The light in the woven's eyes flared and went out, and he fell in a heap to the ground. First to recover from the shock, Freerla ran forward and knelt by his side. When she looked up, her eyes were haunted. He is dead, 